0: The Guardian. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books podcast. I'm Richard Lee.
1: And I'm Sean Kane. I used to think autobiography was sort of the king, but now I'm wondering if, well, more and more I sort of get a sense that people want you to have crafted away at the story and to have made up these characters from scratch. So I don't know what do you think Shan? <laughs>
0: we'll be finding out Shan's definitive ruling on whether fiction lords it over autobiography later when she speaks with Nina Stibby who brings us some much needed reasons to be cheerful and discusses whether it's a blessing or a curse to be classed a funny woman. But first Shan, why do booksellers at Waterstones need a little cheering up?
2: Yeah, so in this past week, a Waterstones staff member launched a petition for booksellers across the chain. So the, the Waterstones chain exists across the UK. So Bookse- only
0: national bookseller. Still. Yeah,
2: <laughs> it's a really, it's our big sort of the main chain of booksellers in the country. A staff member launched a petition to get booksellers to be paid a living wage. And so this is something that exists in the UK, where it's basically a little bit higher than what is the established minimum wage, according to what would be like expected costs of living. Um, It's it's a
0: wage that you should be able to live decently on.
2: Yeah. So uh, that means £10.55 in London and £9 around the rest of the country per hour. And so the petition reads, working for a rate of pay that is below the living wage results in booksellers who are stressed, preoccupied, and who have little spare time and energy to devote to buying books, reading them and keeping up with news and trends in the industry, all of which activities are undertaken outside contracted hours and which many staff consider to be and are encouraged to view as integral to their role. Now, that petition has been signed around about 8,000 people at the time that we're Already, talking. Already, yeah. Yeah. Um, and there's also a second petition that's just for authors who are supporting this which was started by the author Kerry Hudson and that has been signed by the likes of Philip Pullman Jackie Kay David Nichols etc etc
0: So how has Waterstones responded?
2: Well so we covered this in the paper this week and we spoke to the Waterstones managing director James Daunt who told us he quote wouldn't for one second suggest that a career in bookselling is a career paved in gold to retain the best and most talented booksellers we have to reward them and we reward them as well as we can with pay, but we mainly reward them with a stimulating job. I would maintain that we have made some pretty good advances which have brought us to a place where we are financially secure which is just as well given the environment we are in.
0: Because yeah, it's worth remembering the context Waterstones was in terrible trouble when Daunt was appointed managing director back in 2011 and they only returned to profit in 2017. Daunt went on to say that the, the writers who have signed the petition are preaching to the converted and, and adding that a progressing pay structure based on a flaw of the real living wage is highly desirable. If we can continue to grow profitability this would be possible. Do you do you have any sympathy with when he says that at the moment they're simply not profitable enough to wave the magic wand and shower gold all around?
2: Uh, no, to be <laughs> honest. Um, so if you don't know, I'm a, I'm an ex-bookseller. So
0: you never worked for Waterstones? I did not
2: work for Waterstones. I worked for two different chains, one in the UK and one in Australia. I was paid minimum wage in one of those, and in the other, I was paid a little over the minimum wage. I found, as a bookseller, I think what people need to understand about bookselling, I think most people do when they have a particular bookstore that they love returning to it might be because of the feel of that bookstore it might be the kind of books they stock but you have to remember that the feel of a bookstore and the, the curation that goes into a bookshop is entirely done by the booksellers that work there.
0: That's, that's indeed, that's what Daunt's whole project has been to exactly. turn Waterstones around, is yes. to return it to those roots of, of individuals on the shop floor who are actually leading the process of making an individual a bookshop for that locality.
2: Yeah, so like there used to be a, a kind of quite a weird setup in waterstones and i've not ever had this set up in any bookshops that i've worked in that they used to have a very centralized buying system so there'd be an office that would decide what each bookshop would stock and they would send books out to those stores but then... determine
0: national offers and things exactly. in the windows and so
2: which is fine but then there is no allowance there for expertise on an individual store-based level so one store in one part of the country might have people coming in after a particular kind of book and if some head office across the other side of the country has decided that shop can only have five then suddenly you've got a lot of disgruntled customers that perhaps, you know, need to pre-order or something. And and
0: that approach was exactly what was leading Waterstones down the wrong path. So that's what James Daunt turned on its head and got local booksellers to take control.
2: Exactly. And I sort of think that, while we, we must give James Daunt a lot of credit for what he did to Waterstones. I think it also is common sense what he did, which was putting trust back in the hands of the booksellers. Because inherently in bookselling, there is a huge amount of expertise involved. There is not one person that works in a bookshop that doesn't know how to sell a book. And it's a real art. Like, it's not exactly like another retail job where you turn up and you get taught how to make coffee and sandwiches, and you can still do that without the passion for coffee and sandwiches. You know, to be a bookseller, you have to have a really high base of, of knowledge when you come into that role. You can't really learn on the job. You can learn what customers are interested in in your area, but you still need to be able to make connections, make recommendations. When a customer comes in and says, I can't remember what this book was, but it was 18 months ago and the cover was blue. You need to be able to know exactly what that book was and perhaps even explain to them what that book was about.
0: Because I mean, that's the reason for going to a local bookshop rather than just exactly. going on Amazon.
2: And so that is key to the success of any bookshop. And booksellers, on the whole, are the lowest paid people in any bookshop chain. So if you've got a hierarchy of pay, your booksellers are always going to be the least well paid. And so I think not recognising just how much expertise is needed for that role because it gets classed as a retail job and for Daunt to position this as I'm giving them a rewarding role that they are getting something fulfilling out of it. I think it's actually taking advantage of a lot of goodwill to say, well, these people are well suited to this role and therefore they should be grateful that I gave it to them. It's like, no, reward them with more pay. Like they deserve it. And there's so much knowledge that is required to be a good bookseller. It's, It's not something you can learn on the job. It is a skill.
0: And if if that trust is placed in the booksellers to, to turn the business around, as they have done over the last few years, that's not met with a, a similar amount of pay.
2: Exactly. And Dawn came back and said, well, I can't pay the lowest paid people more because if I do that, I have to pay everyone else more. And I think he just needs to recognise that the lowest paid people in his business across the country are not being paid enough right now and they're finding it stressful. And I think if you've got 8,000 signatures, a lot of them I know are people that don't work at Waterstones but are perhaps even in other bookshop chains or even in other retail jobs. I think this is a really common feeling in this country at the moment that just a bit more financial security would do so much for people's well-being
0: because this is just the pyramid is turned the wrong way around it's the people who are uh, who are running the local bookshops the people who are uh, recommending things to customers they're the people who are making the business work
2: exactly and the staff that work there are often asked to double up as baristas and sandwich makers and all these things and it, inherent in being a bookseller you're asked to mind children you're asked to clean up messes you are asked to do all these sorts of things that Add loads of responsibilities onto your role, as well as being knowledgeable and friendly, and it's it's a really demanding role. And I don't know if people realise it. I wrote a story, a little opinion piece last last year about just what the reality is, is of being a bookseller, and it was funny because a lot of people that weren't booksellers came back and said, "Oh, I've always viewed it as quite a romantic job." And I didn't realise that sometimes you've got to clean up puke or <laughs> start minding strangers' children and then you don't know where they've gone. Um, but all the booksellers that got back to me was just like, yes, that's it is hard work. It's not like you go to the bookshop, to, you know, and then you're, land, you're sorted for life, you know, that that's the dream job. It is the dream job. But my God, it's hard work. And I know what it's like to be paid minimum wage. But that particular time when I was working on that minimum wage job in that bookshop, I was the most stressed I have ever been. And my partner who was a student at the time was covering our rent just because the costs of living were so high that my minimum wage job wasn't covering it. So I think just just having that awareness and I know Daunt has generally done a lot of good things and shown a lot of goodwill, but When you see the discrepancy between him being paid £1.6 million last year and then what his lowest paid staff are making, I don't think it's a huge ask to be bringing up that base level of pay and just putting everyone's mind at rest a little bit.
0: And talking of putting everyone's mind at rest, we'll be having some slightly cheerier um, news from Nina Stibby after this. Hi, I'm Will Dean, editor of The Guardian Weekly. Since you're a Guardian Books listener, there's a good chance you'll love the Guardian Weekly. It's the Guardian's essential weekly news magazine, featuring a carefully curated selection of Guardian and Observer journalism to give you a global perspective on the issues that matter. You'll find leading opinion writing, analysis, long reads, and cultural coverage from around the world, with free worldwide delivery. So, if you think globally, now's the perfect time to start reading weekly. Visit gu.com forward slash books gw. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 upfront for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Nina Stibby is one of those writers you feel has always been there. But her debut, Love Nina, which became a huge hit, only arrived in 2013. So, Sean, why were you looking forward so much to speaking with her about her latest Lizzie Fogel novel, Reasons to be Cheerful?
2: Well, with, with Nina Stibbe, I've always felt something slightly aspirational with her in that... How do you mean? Um, well, to be like her? Yeah, exactly. So when Love, Nina came out, I was just struck by just... Uh, because they were her letters and they were sort of unedited and in their raw form and just how clever and funny she could be. And then learning more about her and the fact she like left school at 15, but she just read... Huge amounts. It just sort of serves as a lovely reminder for like the power of books and sort of how much that can go towards shaping a sense of wit and wider intelligence. And I've always loved how clever her books are and how like unapologetically comic they are. And they feel very old-fashioned to me in some ways. They do remind me of sort of a Woodhouseian, Sue Townsend, Louise Renison, like all these British writers that I read as a teenager. That all felt very British to me but were also from sort of years gone by sort of thing. Perhaps less Louise Renison because she was writing for about teens when I was a teen but she was sort of putting her version of a teenager out into the world and there's just something really warm and not nostalgic because often the people in them are horrible <laughs> because of their <laughs> opinions and attitudes um, and particularly in this book, it's set in the 80s, but... They're just, they're, they're really just reassuring reads. You, you kind of, and in the best way, you know you're not going to have any horrible surprises with Nina Stibby. So I like her in that she is a true sense of the word, a comfort read.
0: When Nina joined Sean in the studio, she began with the reading.
1: So this is where Lizzie is imagining that her mother might not survive the surgical repair of her prolapsed uterus and she's imagining that she might so the mother might die and then she and baby Danny would be left uh, motherless i imagined that if the worst happened i could bring danny up as my own i'd make him forget the past and call me mother and that way i'd be accepted by society without having to go through with actual childbirth and risk having a child who was scared of water or dogs or didn't like music, or stayed awake at night, or had long arms and could reach out from its pram. I'd seen a baby like this in Phoenix, literally grabbing things off the shelves. He always does that, said the mother. He's got extra long arms. Then there were April Jixon's twins. I can't remember their real names, because she always called them Thing One and Thing Two, for whom I babysat a few times after her husband had suffered a life-changing accident in Rimini. Thing One was quite sweet and normal, but Thing Two, my God, he was a real fusspot, and yet they were biological twins. Thing One would tuck into his fish finger igloo with nothing but praise and admiration. Look, Lizzie made an igloo. Whereas Thing Two would angrily want to know why I'd fooled with his food and would dig at the mashed potato dome with his kiddie fork, looking for his fish fingers. And the only song he'd allow was Calling Occupants of Interplanetary Craft by The Carpenters. And that's not a song you can take more than once or twice. I once reported thing to, to April. He's a bit fussy, isn't he? I'd said. Tell me about it, said April. He can be a right little cunt.
2: I was reading your book, Reasons to be Cheerful, on a bus a couple of weeks ago. And when you see the book on the title cover, it has, like a, uh, it has the title in very big words. And an old man was sitting down nearby to me. And he sort of reached up because I was standing and he rapped on the on the book like a door (laughs) and he said oh we need a few of those don't we and sort of made a reference to the title and I did that sort of awful Londoner thing where I sort of panicked because a stranger was talking (laughs) to me and (laughs) just sort of looked at him a bit blankly like okay Um, but then I was thinking about it and I thought actually that this is the book that I really wanted to be reading right now because it it is so funny and so warm and in a lot of ways it really did in the best way that fiction can kind of pull me out of where I was at the time and put me in the book. And I think why I found it so remarkable is that it just doesn't feel flashy at all in Mm. in its funniness, you know? And I think actually that's probably quite a lot harder to do than someone trying to do out and out comedy mm. because this is a book with darkness in it and yeah. a lot of troubling stuff in it. It's like the you know, 1980s so some of the attitudes in it are, you, you gasp when you read them yes. but it, it's such a it's such a funny book and so actually I kind Good. of want to just say thanks. Oh well thank you. <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for reading it and liking it. So that's exactly what
1: I love to hear.
2: Good. Well I mean and I think that's actually something that's true for all of your books and particularly with Love Nina which sort of established you mm. so you just sort of uh, uh, kind of came fully formed with that book as yes. a sort of a comedic voice yes
1: well I was lucky wasn't I because mm. they were genuine letters yeah and I had been trying to write before those letters were published and I was trying very hard to be literary or interesting and sometimes funny and actually what Love Nina told me very clearly was Just relax and don't try hard. Actually, people don't need to have you, you know, doing a jig in front of them or pulling the trousers down. Actually, just the everyday is plenty funny enough.
2: And there's quite a lot in here to sort of remind you, I think, how something that can be quite frustrating can also be ridiculed as well. Yes. So a lot of the characters in this book and uh, if listeners have read any of your other books, so um, either Man at the Helm or Paradise Lost, they'll be really familiar with Lizzie, yes. who's the sort of main protagonist out of yep. in all three books. And she's now 18 and left home, but yeah. her mother is still this very overwhelming figure, which yes. people, um, I know people have loved yes, uh, have. the mother figure. And you're very open about the fact that These books are semi-autobiographical. Yes, at least semi. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, approaching just autobiographical really in some ways. How do you, in terms of, a lot of authors are quite coy sometimes about how much of themselves they put into their books, but you've always been very upfront that this is your life and your family that you're drawing upon, your own mother that you're talking about when you write about Lizzie's mother.
1: Well, my first book was completely real it was just real letters and I wasn't allowed to tweak them or embellish them in any way I would have liked to (laughs) but Penguin got hold of them raw and made me stand behind them as they were and I think because I'd had that experience when my first novel came out I didn't feel as maybe as shy as I might have had Love Nina not already come out and been very successful and I didn't plan to reveal how real they were but once I had that was it and the the cat was out of the bag and I think none of my family minded with Man at the Helm they were very they felt quite vindicated actually because there there are issues in that book where my mum was a single mum and things were a bit difficult and so they felt quite yeah quite vindicated I think quite quite pleased to have our side of the story told and then because I did have this fairly unusual childhood and it was quite funny And interesting it seems silly not to continue and people ask me a lot about the autobiographical content and you know I often want to throw it back at people and say well so as a reader do you do you want it to be autobiographical or do you want it to be fiction and which is worth more I I, you know because I used to think autobiography was sort of the king but now I'm wondering if well, more and more I sort of get a sense that people want you to have crafted away at the story and to have made up these characters from scratch. So I don't know, what do you think, Sean?
2: <laughs> I don't know. I mean there were points in the story and I think if anyone's read Paradise Lodge or Man at the Helmet particular, because Lizzie's at her youngest then mm. that when you read about that home life and you've had a very sensible, boring home life like I did, that that you sometimes worry that if it was Mm. autobiographical Mm. that this actually happened Mm. and that a child grew up in this environment and you do worry about it. So actually, in some ways, that could be quite distracting. Mm. But... Yeah, that's true. And in fact, people did say to me
1: after Man at the Helm, Crikey, I was so worried about you, yeah, you just wonder
2: sometimes I was like, was she getting like a a, a good dinner at yeah. night? you know not that really. that sort of thing, no,
1: <laughs> but, but you know, but we were getting books and plays and theater and Shakespeare, mm. but we weren't necessarily getting a you know a veg you know five fruit and veg a day, <laughs> not that that had been invented then, but there is that that it can be quite worrying, and people did say that, and then with Paradise Lodge, of course, it took place in a nursing home, and that was all real, yeah and because I was 15 when I started working in the nursing home and I was, you know, dealing with people at the end of their lives and I was laying out dead bodies and doing all sorts of things, I tracked down other nurses for, of the time from that place, which it was a nursing home not called Paradise Lodge, but I, I, I went back and found people and said, look, to me this was a joyful, wonderful time Yes, it was sad as well, but, you know, is my memory right? And they said, yes, absolutely. Mm. It was an incredibly happy, wonderful place. And then, again, with reasons to be cheerful, I thought, well, I worked in a dental surgery. Should I have Lizzie working in a dental surgery? And if so, why? And I thought, actually, it's a really good place to trap a young person (laughs) and force her to see adults negotiating each other and... Being either incredibly compassionate or not, and seeing people perhaps at their weakest, in pain, worried because people are when they're at the dentist. I mean, there's not that much dentistry in it. It is a comedy, <laughs> but it just seemed like a really good idea. And I thought, well, where am I going to? Where where else could I put her where she'd see so much of humanity? And in the end, I thought, well, I'll, I'll I may as well keep it at the dentist, and I know so much about it.
2: Mm, and that's so funny because when you are faced with that idea to set a comedy in a nursing home even yeah. but also a yeah. dentist which is not sort of usually a bundle of laughs from most no. people <laughs> no it, it doesn't seem obvious but it completely works as a setting. well it worked for me
1: mm. but I think some people are a bit squeamish about it I well, have... there's
2: quite a lot of facts and you know the, yeah. the sort of exacts of how you how you pull out a tooth at the root for example I
1: thought people would want to know that yeah so you pull to... it out like a radish and actually you don't pull it out you sort of push it out as mm. it were but I didn't I mean there's not massive of gory stuff in there, but I really thought people would like a bit of that. Yeah. And I've been really surprised. I mean, the people I know who will read about a horrific serial killer and, you know, sort of dismembering people and, you know, just being really evil and vile and terrifying those people are saying to me, oh no, I couldn't read your book. Oh no. And you think, well, hang on a minute.
2: We all have to go to the dentist. It's not that bad. <laughs> and with Lizzie being 18. And so she, she basically at this point where the book starts, she's trying to find a way of moving out of the home. She wants a job and she gets this job, which involves also getting a flat above the dentist yeah. the dentist's office. And she's leaving her, her mother behind. Was it fun to revisit yourself at this time of your oh, life yes, yeah yes
1: I I mean I, I love teenagers I think mm. they're great and I know that I'm surrounded by people who actually don't really respect and like young people at all and it always shocks me because I liked myself then I think I was really brave and opinionated and great I've got less good as I've got older <laughs> so I loved going back and revisiting the me and also sort of making Lizzie Her own person as well, a fictional person, and I've got a really good memory, and so I can remember tiny little things. One of the things that I remembered that was amazing to me, I was completely forgotten about this. So I was brought up by this really snobbish literature lover, my mum, who would, you know, would force us to read, well, you know, Moby Dick and. Just stuff that was too old for us. We, our bedtime story would be, you know, *Rumor Godden. Well, actually, she <laughs> did write some kids' stories, but she'd read us the, you know, Black Narcissus about the nuns in Himalayas and things. And <laughs> Anyway, so I went from that very cultural, rather hungry home life to a waiting room full of women's magazines. Yeah, I was about to say. And they were blissful because they made sense to me. They were all about how to actually live. And they weren't, back then, so this is the early 80s, they weren't a sort of selly, they sort of weren't desperate for you to buy five different eyeliners and, you know, they weren't very, as gossipy about, they weren't a sort of shaming, I mean not all of them are now, but they weren't at all like that, they were very much on the woman's side and they knew you didn't have much money and they knew that you, you know, you were sort of trying to make ends meet and trying to be a proper woman and, and sort of women had fairly recently all gone out into the workplace I mean it wasn't it's quite a long time ago it doesn't sound it but it really was the 80s was I mean, there were still a lot of women who didn't leave the home they still were housewives mm. but so these magazines were brilliant at sort of presenting a world that matched the world I was actually seeing mm. whereas I captured the castle. Yeah, fantastic. But that wasn't <laughs> the world I was seeing anymore. Once I'd left the home, yeah. I was seeing women who got their hair done on a Friday and had to keep it unspoiled for the weekend, so they weren't to have sex. So <laughs> it go matted at the back.
2: Because <laughs> with Lizzie, there's a moment where she has a sort of moment of, sort of teen rebellion where she tells her mother she doesn't, she didn't like Moby Dick. Yes. And, you know, yeah. It's too much uh, sperm oil. I think. Yes. <laughs> yes. And then. All throughout, there's all these references to her hoping, sort of aiming to write for Women's Own and yes, this stuff like that, yes. and all these references to all this sort of knowledge that she's accruing. Yes. And I just found it such a lovely idea of that being a teenage rebellion, well, getting it, well, into it these was, really quaint I was
1: like that, and and this is this is why I don't feel too bad about making Lizzie quite like me because I was an old fogey. At, at eighteen, I went and bought an aquascooter Mac in the sales because. I'd learnt that it was really formal and smart and you could just wear it over your pyjamas and still look nice. But this was in the sort of post-punk era when all the rest of my friends were wearing bin liners and you know, shaving their heads and, and slashing their T-shirts. I was buying my clothes in Fenix and also <laughs> wearing sandals because I got a little bit of athlete's foot. And so I just wanted to clear that up. Whereas the rest of my friends would be vile, but they didn't care because they were young. Whereas I was just very grown up and woman's own was my Bible.
2: And I, I like that with Lizzie. It's not necessarily that because it's so rooted in in reality, but there seems just in throughout there is a respect for young people. That there is this idea that she could be this intelligent and this mm. witty and this knowing yeah. at eighteen, yes, as well as being yes. hugely insecure and yes. unworldly in a lot yes. of ways
1: and uneducated. Don't forget, mm. Lizzie left school without any what we used to call O levels, GCSEs, as did I. I mean, I left by fifteen. But I was perfectly intelligent. I was just as clever and sparky as the other kids. But I was fairly free in my thinking. I, I think I I prided myself on seeing what really was there. And I think that's what was so great about ditching all the highbrow novels. Was, you know, I know, I, do you know what? I just want to look properly. And obviously I did get quite hooked on the women's magazines. <laughs> but, but I, yeah, I was... I think I started thinking, you know, how to be a proper woman and, and thinking, well, so if, if you don't have to have a baby or do you have to have a baby? Because one of the things that happened in the late 70s was the first IVF child was born, what we used to call test tube babies, and people were obsessed with this. So there were people who were very glad and happy and it gave them all sorts of opportunities that they might not have had. But there were also women who felt, oh, no. I'm never going to escape this. I can't now just pretend, you know, I can't just be secretly on the pill. Mm. Because there was, I think it was in Educating Rita, the film, there was a character, I think Rita herself was secretly on the pill. Lots of women were secretly on the pill and just said they couldn't, you know, not having any luck, you know. And then this IVF thing came and it meant they were all carted off to have fertility treatment. So that was quite interesting that suddenly this having a baby, having a baby was honestly one of the only ways you could get any kind of acknowledgement or kudos as a woman and it's hard to imagine that nowadays but it really was I mean my mum herself had five children just to have achieved something Mm. and yeah so that was that was really
2: confusing and strange and it's but it's it's so interesting in that 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 conversation has moved on slightly but it is still a conversation that women are having about yeah well uh, are we in our own rights to yeah. not have children yeah. there is still that that slight stigma to putting up your hand and openly saying actually no I that's not for me and I yeah. don't want
1: to yeah well of course one of the difficult things is that there are people who would like to who can't and so you know it is it, a very very tricky subject and you, and people can get very upset so that so nobody really talks about it and, and there was someone in the Guardian the other day saying that they get stick for having one child mm. And people are constantly saying to her, when are you going to have another? Are you going to have another? And so my thing is, my rules for writing fiction are, you know, it's got to pass the Bechdel. <laughs> and women don't just have to have babies. And actually, it's quite nice to raise the issue sometimes to have a character saying, I don't want a baby. And there is a character in this book that says that. And everyone's up in arms going, what? What about when you're 50? How will you feel then? <laughs> Um, yeah, so it's, it's a comedy.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I can say, it's, like a comedy. it's a comedy. A comedy. <laughs> well, I mean, it really, really firmly is a comedy. And yes, I, I was wondering how you felt about because I, I, I kind of felt funny about even telling you that you were funny. And then yeah. I was like, do you do you recognize yourself as a funny person? That,
1: you know, the being funny thing is, is a strange one. Because to me, if someone says to me, you know, I think you're really funny. And if I say, yes, yes, thank you, it's as if someone said, I think you're really pretty. Yeah, <laughs> It's the same exact thing that you're supposed to go, oh, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not. But actually, I think my writing is funny, and I find writing funny stuff easier than writing plot. Mm. I mean, I find writing plot extraordinarily difficult, and I, I feel if I start imposing plot on my ideas they can get buried in it and they can get lost. And, and I've, been, I've had a bit of stick about that. For, in reviews sometimes people say, "Oh, you know, there's a very light plot or the you know, usual plotless ramble. <laughs> but for me, being funny comes naturally. This is why Love Nina was funny, mm. because I was naturally telling details about ordinary life that just were quite funny.
2: Yeah.
1: And, yeah, I don't think I should be ashamed of it.
2: No. But Do you think people can learn to
1: be funny? i don 't know, I grew up in a, a big family i've got lots i 've got seven brothers and sisters all together from different marriages, and my mum is very jokey and funny, always very jokey and and even when tragic things were happening, bad things, as you know from reading some of my other books, we found a way of laughing at the, the bad things and and sometimes that's that can be quite difficult and my son was having a hearing test recently and I got the giggles just because he got <laughs> the big thing and he had to press the button and somehow it was so serious it seemed funny and mm. so I got the giggles and I was asked to leave <laughs> and um and I thought yeah you know I'm really funny but crikey I can't even sit in a medical appointment with my son without wetting myself and it's, it can be a bit you know a bit of a it can get in the way yeah it can get in the way and my siblings and I still and we're we're in our 40s and 50s now Uh, We laugh at each other all the time and sometimes you don't want to be laughed at. My sister came to a hair appointment with me. I got a big do that I was doing and I had to have my hair done. And so my sister Vic came with me and she started taking photos of me and laughing because we just haven't ever grown up. And Mm. I think so sometimes it's sometimes it can be a bit just not very nice. But I've got a friend Stella. Who you can barely get her to raise a smile, <laughs> and so when, so when when we're all together having a really lovely time or a family holiday, and you hear Stella laughing, you just think, great, it's happened, you know, she, someone's managed to you know crack her, and somehow that kind of non funny people finding something funny is the most rewarding. So yeah, I, yes, I think I am quite funny, but I think I was sort of, I sort of inherited it. And I grew up with it and it does come very naturally to me. But I think maybe I need to work on some other areas.
2: I think that's maybe maybe that's why I find it so your your book so reassuring at least is that you know, no matter what you manage to make me laugh on yeah. a bus while yeah. everything right now is yeah, happening I
1: know I mean that's it's funny isn't it but it's so funny about comedy writing because you've got the sort of and stuff where you've got elaborate plots and sort of comedy of errors and trousers falling down and you know posh people getting their comeuppance and all that kind of thing and that's and then you've got the sort of slapstick stuff that really worked when the world was really hard I mean in the I don't know in the really hard times you've got Charlie Chaplin as a tramp eating his shoe because he's so hungry and we laugh at that and that's kind of slapstick weird stuff but we needed that then or people I am quite old but I wasn't around then but then the sort of gentle everyday humor that I think I do which is sort of just about details almost about lists there's a list in this book where Lizzie thinks she'd like to go and live in America with her father and his new family and she thinks she's going to be the American correspondent for Woman's Own. And she says this I could pick up on all sorts of American lifestyle tips that would enchant and enthrall our British readers. How does Rosalind Carter keep her trim figure in spite of her peanut addiction? How do American women cope with the modern problems such as indecent exposure, sexual betrayal, and the side effects of the contraceptive pill and creasy eyeshadow? Do they mind not having a king, queen? Do they get French cheeses? And if so, what do they serve it with? Why do American women like English men so much when they sound so stuffy? Why do Americans serve such big lunch portions? How do they keep their turkey moist during cooking? Why do their cars have to be so big? Raccoons. The history of that double wink with the right eye, then the left. And what about <laughs> raccoons? It's that kind of, And it's just, when I was writing that list, I thought, what could Lizzie... Have? And I, I just wrote it down like that, and I thought, well, that'll do. Uh,
2: yeah, Actually, that's fine.
1: It just <laughs> came out like that. And I sent, I thought my editor might say, you'll oh, this, but she, she wrote, oh, raccoon, brilliant, and I love it. And I thought, yes, it's because that's the way it came out. Yeah. I
2: didn't have to try and make that come out, so I can't claim any credit for that. Because I was wondering about how much um, thought goes into you in terms of whether you've just been accruing observations over Mm. the last however many years and then now you're finding a venue to put them all in or the conversations and things that you've made note of oh yeah
1: definitely and uh, and there are things that come out when I'm thinking about a scene I will remember something real and it needn't be very funny but the very peculiarness of it is funny Mm. and it's something I mean I'm you know, I'm not claiming to be on the same level as David Sedaris, but that's why he's so funny because he can pick out from a situation, from a you know a meeting with other people, an encounter what the funny thing is. And I did an interview with him the other day, and I asked him, I said, "What what about this uh, this evening are you going to put in your diary tonight?" And it was a very particular little tiny bit about a woman who'd found an inju- injured pigeon. And I thought, yeah, that is the best thing that happened tonight. And you instinctively <laughs> know that it's that. Yeah. And it wasn't the most glamorous thing because there were lots of glamorous things and there was lots of important people and there were lots of funny laughs. And But there was that tiny little gem of a thing, which was that uh, this woman found an injured pigeon and she staying in the Premier Inn and she couldn't just leave it in the street, so she left it in her bathroom.
2: Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah,
1: she left it in her <laughs> was bathroom. Was it alive? Yeah, it oh. was injured. Did she leave was, a note? No, but she didn't leave leave it and check out. Okay. She was going back there that evening to live there for the night. Oh, God. And the pigeon was there. And I said to her, I said, well, good for you. Did you put the loose seat down? And she went, no. And then she was imagining (laughs) that it might have hopped up onto the, you know, and then, and of course, it's... The obvious thing for the whole evening, the obvious thing to remember and diarise is that thing. Is the pigeon. Yeah. And, (laughs) I mean, this is why keeping diaries is so brilliant. Of course, Mm. nobody does it, but we should do it. Because that's what's funny when you look back. Mm. It's, you know, that you've written something which isn't funny at the time. That's the other thing. And the thing about Love Nina and those letters, they weren't funny when I wrote them at the time. They weren't funny at all. They weren't meant to be funny. But years later, of course, they're they're hilarious because... (laughs) I'm this fish out of water talking about Alan Bennett not being able to reverse the car properly. (laughs) Which didn't seem funny at the time at all.
0: But somehow hilarious in the retelling. Thank you to Nina Stibby. Reasons to be Cheerful is published by Viking in the UK and due later this year from Little Brown in the US. But before we go, Sean, it was your birthday, so happy birthday.
2: Thank you. <laughs> For Claire's
0: birthday, we gave her a whole special episode, but then it was a special birthday. You went to Copenhagen to celebrate. Did you discover anything bookish while you were there?
2: Yes, well, uh, my birthday wasn't a special birthday, but I'm very glad to be getting my own episode because I was horrendously jealous of Claire. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I... I was in Copenhagen with my parents and my partner. And my partner is a reader, but neither of my parents are. And I was given the liberty to drag them all to the National Library of Denmark. Very um, nice. <laughs> and I was allowed to, which is really <laughs> thrilling for a nerd like me. Um, and so my parents... Uh, what's
0: it like? Is it oldie worldie oh, or... Oh, it's glass so cool. And-
2: well, it's, it's both. So it's it's kind of built over a road... And it's, you know, it's Denmark, so it's all horrendously nice and, you know, exorbitant. But it was, uh, it's sort of a lot of glass and a strange black box from the outside. And then you go in and uh, you go into this really amazing foyer and you go up and you end up in the old part of the library, which they've sort of built a modern case around. But the inside of it is all, you know, wooden panels Mm. and nice Leather-tooled volumes. Yes, exactly. (laughs) So... That was really nice, and uh, yeah, only on your birthday do you get to drag a whole bunch of non-readers <laughs> to a library and demand that they stay while you sort of ooh and ah at the, at the shelves, but yeah, it was really, really fun.
0: So in next week's podcast, we welcome Elizabeth Jane Burnett and Ian Mullaney, with memoirs rooted in the soil of southwest England and the Irish Midlands, exploring place, family and loss.
2: And as always, do contact us on Twitter at Guardian Books or by leaving a comment on the podcast page. And do subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts.
0: But for now, from me, Richard Lee.
2: And me, Sean Kane.
0: And our producer, Susanna Trasillian. Thanks for listening and goodbye. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.